Yeah, so um, we have been busy with a, a very um, beautiful series um, on, the, on the book of Daniel. And, you know, Craig, I think, also hinted that I need to give you a reprieve of the book of Daniel. I was then considering, you know, maybe I will turn to one of those Jewish, um, what is called deuterocanonical books, books that didn't make it into the Bible. Um, one of that is a book called Balan the Dragon, which is actually presented as Daniel chapter 13, you know, which tells a non-biblical story of how Daniel was able to help King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, to consider who is the true God and that Baal and the dragon wasn't God, you know. But that's due to the canonical. Um, however, you know, there's been something that has been happening um, within, um, within the world. Once again, our attention has been focused on, on the Middle East. And, and as a result, the question that has arisen um, is one again about, you know, is there anything that is of prophetic significance as to what is currently happening in the Middle East? And so that is what I'm going to be doing today. Um, I'm going to be talking about the Middle East, and now I need to get this thing to work properly. There we go. And reflecting on the Middle East conflict, and I'm sure, you know, you are hearing lots of opinions about that today, in which the question is being asked, you know, so what is happening there? Is there any prophetic significance to that? And where do we as Christians position ourselves, you know, in relation to what is happening there? There are many opinions out there, very strong opinions. Some of them I agree with, and some of them I strongly disagree with. Um, I've spoken on this topic on a number of occasions, um, and it has always caused a degree of discomfort with people um, because I've often shared um, understandings and reflections on the biblical, what I believe is a biblical perspective on this that has not always been very, very popular. So um, I'm expecting that some of you are going to be feeling uncomfortable with what I'm going to be sharing today. You're welcome to do that, and you're welcome to have a discussion with me over coffee or in our own personal conflict if you want that. <laughs> but hopefully not. Um, yes, I believe that to answer many questions, you know, because there are many scriptures that are often raised on this topic, um, and people say, yes, but does the Bible not say? You know, and they will highlight a particular verse or a passage of scripture which in their mind seems to be the complete answer as to what the situation is all about. But I believe that every scripture needs to be understood within its context. And when we understand it within its context, we come to maybe a better understanding as to what it is all about. And that's why I call what I'm wanting to share today a biblical theological perspective. While I am going to be focusing our attention on one of these passages of scripture, so it is with special reference to a passage that not many people turn to, but is actually an important passage when one wants to consider this issue of the conflict in the Middle East centered around the land and trying to answer the question, whose land is it anyway? Because there's a, a little um, section within Romans chapter 11, verse 26 in particular, that talks about all Israel will be saved. But let's read the passage, um, and in reading this passage, I'm going to take us on a journey, on what I call an historical journey through the Bible, 
that will hopefully bring us to a point to understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he said all Israel will be saved and what its implications is there for when it comes to our understanding as to the conflict in the Middle East around the land. This is what the Word of the Lord says, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, particularly verse 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Thus far, God's word this morning. I've had the privilege of only being able to visit Israel on one occasion. While I was busy, part of my academic studies, um, one of my professors always said to us, if you truly want to understand the Bible and understand the historical and the geographic assumptions that the Bible makes, you need to make sure that you have a good spatial awareness as to what is happening in order to understand many of those passages. So I applied for a scholarship, and fortunate for me, I was able to spend almost seven weeks in Israel as part of an archaeological dig to supplement the studies that I was doing at the time. So that was my own Indiana Jones experience. In Ashkelon, which is just about 20 kilometers north of Gaza, um, in which I didn't actually find the lost ark, but I did find something which was, which was quite fascinating to me, what is called a foundation deposit. It is an unused um, um, lamp that would be placed inside a bowl and another bowl on top of it, which is something that the Philistines would do because we were studying the Philistine period um, of the land. And that is what they did when they were building a new building and dedicating their building to whatever God that they were serving. But that experience gave me an opportunity to visit all across the land. So I tried to visit, and which I did, visit many places as possible, including excursions into the West Bank, not into Gaza because I was told I looked too much like a Palestinian. They were very serious about that because if my passport was going to be stamped as it would needed to have been done if I'd gone into Gaza, they would probably not let me out. So I just saw Gaza from a distance. But it gave me a, an awareness as to how small that place actually is. You know, Now that is not Israel that you will recognize <laughs> as the Western Cape. But if you were to superimpose Israel on the Western Cape, that is actually how big Israel is or how small Israel is. It's actually no larger than the Kruger National Park. 450 kilometers in length and, you know, at best maybe 15 kilometers wide. You know, it's like driving from Cape Town to Garis, then you have driven from um, the bottom end of Israel to the top end. You know, actually quite small. But when one reads the Bible, one needs to come to this understanding that God knew exactly what he was doing. You know, because that small piece of land, that Israel, of what in the biblical times 
in the time of Abraham and in the times of the conquest was called Canaan, was actually a land bridge between ancient civilizations. So there were mighty civilizations. There was Egypt, there was Assyria, there was the empire of the Hittites, which is modern-day Turkey. You know, um, there was Babylon, etc. Some of the places we're going to be taking a look at. And what God was doing, as you can see, Israel superimposed over there, that anybody who sought to be anybody knew that they could only do that if they controlled that narrow piece of land. So God, when he called Abraham, because that's when the journey starts in the Bible, God was actually had an intention in mind. He wanted to make sure that his story of salvation would take center stage in the history of the world as well as within its geography. And so that's when the story of land and the promise of land actually starts. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Abram that he is going to be a great man. And he is going to be the father of many nations, of many people. And so God calls Abram out of what is today modern-day Iraq, um, and in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and sends him on a journey into a promised land that we call Canaan. And it is fascinating to see how this piece of, this very small piece of real estate came to be called by many different names. A land by any other name, as we might say. So as you read through the Bible, you will see sometimes it's called the land of Canaan, um, recognition of the various people, groups who lived in different city-states within the land of, of Canaan. These were the people particularly that God had warned his people about when they were leaving Egypt and coming in, back into the promised land, saying that those are the people you must get rid of. Why? Because they serve gods that's going to lead you astray. Sometimes it's also called the land of just Israel or the land of Israel, um, as in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 19, based upon Zechariah chapter 2 verse 12, um, we refer to it as the Holy Land, people still do that today, um, but it was actually the, the, the Greek historian Herodotus that called the area Philistine Syria until the, the, the the Roman Emperor Hadrian, in 132, he was the one who actually came up with this name, Palestine. And Palestine just simply means Philistine. You see, what the Emperor Hadrian was doing, because these Jewish people caused him so much problems, he found it very difficult to control them. He decided to call them, the Jews, by the name of the, of the historical enemies. He called them Philistines. Today, we refer to the area either as the modern state of Israel or Israel and Palestine. But it is that name Israel that I think is very important to understand because that's the word that is used in the passage in Romans when it says, all Israel will be saved. What is the Bible actually referring to? The, is it referring to the land of Israel or is it referring to something else? And once again, we have to go back into the Old Testament into the patriarchal stories, particularly in the descendants of Abraham. Remember the Bible says, as it reminds God's people, I am the God of your father Abraham. Isaac, 
and then Jacob. Isaac, the son of the promise, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You know, by the tradition of the day, Esau had to actually be the one that had to have received his father's blessing um, and to continue the lineage. But you know, even in that story, we begin to see the way in which God works. God doesn't follow the normal pattern of things. God doesn't follow the tradition of appointing the eldest or the one that we think is going to lead. God goes another way. God actually takes the deceiver, Jacob. Jacob, who, because of his deception against his brother, has to escape, has to run away, and ends up with his uncle Laban, and thereafter laboring to get married um, to, um, to, to his wives, um, his daughters. Eventually he returns. And it's in that return journey that something very interesting happens. The first WWE experience in the Bible, Jacob wrestles with God. And we are told that after God does a pile driver on him, or whatever God did to him in order to um, give him a limp, God changes his name. Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. God says, you will now be called Israel. It's important to understand what that word Israel means. It literally means one who strives with God. So the name of Jacob gets changed into Israel, and that becomes the name given to all of his descendants. So the word Israelite literally means one who strives with God. And so we know that that's where they live, but eventually the story takes them away out of the promised land due to the circumstances of famine, and they end up in Egypt. And there they grow and they actually develop and become what you might call a nation, you know, because there are now many people, Pharaoh was very intimidated by them, um, and so God promises them that they can return to the promised land. And they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a journey that should have taken them no more than a month. But because of their disobedience, because they were intimidated by the Canaanite people who were living in the land, particularly the city of Jericho, um, God sent them back. You know, and only a remnant returned. Only a group of people who, um, who were now um, not guilty of disobedience returned. And that's where they returned. They returned to live in a country in which there were actually many nations present. There were Canaanites, there were Hittites, there were Philistines, there were Phoenicians, there were Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Midianites, all kinds of parasites. No. Um, but God said to them, as they were entering into the promised land, that they need to go on a conquest. A part of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that's often very difficult to understand. You know, why would God allow His people to enter into this promised land and to put cities, whole cities under the ban? Men, women, children, including animals that needed to be destroyed. You see, one needs to understand that what God was actually doing, He was targeting a particular group of people that was the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were Baal worshippers. They were Asherah worshippers. These were the people that God warned them that if you do not destroy them completely, they will lead you astray. It wasn't, 
a, a thing to say, and all the other people destroy them. Because some of them, like the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, were actually their cousins, if you understand the biblical story correctly. But the, the history of the Old Testament and all of the prophetic books in the Old Testament makes it clear that they were not, they were not obedient to that call. And as a result, Israel on many occasions did fall prey to the many temptations. Um, and as a result of that, God said to them, as he said in the book of Deuteronomy, that if they were not going to do everything that God told them to do, if they were going to be disobedient, God was going to curse them, and God was going to take away from them the very things that he had promised them, including the land. And so we, we quickly go into what we call the divided kingdom of Israel where eventually there, be, there, there, there comes a division in the land following David, David's sin, uh, and through David's descendants, there's a division in the land between the northern, what becomes known as the northern kingdom of Israel, with its capital in Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem. Ten northern tribes, those ten northern tribes eventually find themselves besieged by the Assyrians, the northern capital of, of Israel in Samaria falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC, and that is how we get the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel. Because they get assimilated by the Assyrians, many of them get deported, get taken away to Assyria, others get destroyed. Assyria turns the attention on Judah in the south, but they are not successful because Assyria itself is overrun by another empire, the Babylonians. In the year 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, two remaining tribes of Judah that now becomes Israel, the idea of a remnant, um, they fall to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Why did all of this happen? Well, it simply happened because as the prophets had said, that if God's people is going to be disobedient, if they're not going to be following God's word, God was going to punish them and God was going to take away from them the very things that they had promised them, including the land. And from that time up until modern days, that is where Israel finds itself, always subservient to another empire, whether it was the Syrians, whether it was the Babylonians, until finally, it is under the Persians, that under the Medo-Persian Empire, eventually, and this is the period of the book of Daniel, we find King Cyrus issuing a decree. Um, that is what is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was um, an ancient um, tweet. What's it called now? <laughs> Facebook post. <laughs> it was the way in which ancient kings would record their victories. This is, you'll find it in the British Museum, um, the Cyrus Cylinder, where the Persian king Cyrus issues a repatriation decree around about the year 536 BC, where it allows the Jews to return to their home country, even to rebuild their own temple, but still under the custodianship of Persia. And that is the history of Israel, a history that from ancient times into modern times is beset by a history of conflict, 
let me try and sketch what this history of conflict is all about, about, going all the way back to what we call the patriarchal period, going back around 2000 BC, from the time of Abraham, that time of wanderings, in which Abraham came into contact with many people, Akkadians, Sumerians, Canaanite groups, and Egyptians. In fact, when you read the biblical story carefully, you will see that there were often people who were being assimilated into Israel. It's an important notion to understand when it comes to understanding what the Bible means by all Israel. Even in the Exodus period, when they come and they settle into the promised land, yes, they are able to deal with some of the Canaanite groups, but others they were not able to deal with. They did not deal with in disobedience, but there were also other people groups. And many of those people groups connected with them, intermarried with them, and um, actually became part of who they were. Even under the monarchy, in that period of centralization, there was the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. All of them influenced Israel. In the time of the exile, the dispersion and the assimilation that happened under Persia. And then, up until the time of Jesus, it was the Greek, the Hasmoneans, as well as the Romans that eventually controlled the promised land. In the New Testament period, up until the period of the early church, um, for at least 300 years, in fact, the Romans remain in control of what is called the land of Israel or the promised land. The post-Roman period um, starts with the Byzantine period, the Islamic period, as you can see, which is the largest period within which there is control of the promised land. That also gave rise to what is known in modern history as the Ottoman period until the early 1900s when the British had control over the land between 1920 and 1948. What am I trying to illustrate here? Hundreds of years of disobedience in which God was saying to his people, as long as you remain disobedient, I will remove from you the things I've promised you, especially the land. It was in the early 1900s as Jews were experiencing persecution and in which they were not, in which they found themselves not very accepted within many countries, including European countries, that a Swiss journalist by the name of Theodor Herzl started to talk about the idea of a state of Israel, Zionism as what it's called today, which is actually a political movement, not a religious movement, a political movement to get Israelites, to get Jews back into the Holy Land. And as a result of that, it has caused a lot of problems. Because from the early 1900s, Palestinians, which are actually not Philistines, but they are a mixed group of Arab people who had been present in, in what is today Israel-Palestine for many years, actually controlled more than 90% of the land under the British, of course, and every other nation that controlled him. But following on this idea that Theodor Herzl had, you had many waves of Jews who decided that because we're not being accepted anywhere else in the world, maybe we need to make our way to our promised land. By the way, 
they actually considered other places. One of it is Uganda that was being considered as their possible promised land. But based maybe upon this idea in the Bible, they made their way into Israel, Palestine, which caused a lot of problems. And eventually, as you can see what we have today, um, people being dispossessed of land in which Palestinians have arisen in an attempt to try and free themselves, not always in the best way possible, um, but especially under what became known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, <clears throat> that is today the Palestinian Authority, that is kind of a hodgepodge of different Palestinian groups, including some militant, group, militant groups like Hamas, who more recently um, perpetrated that horrendous and terrible attack on Israel, but others as well, like Fatah that, that controls the West Bank. And that is the Gaza Strip, the place where a large number of Palestinians actually live. Just over two million people pressed into what some have described as the largest prison in the world, 42 kilometers long by about 15 kilometers wide. I don't know if you know, but there is actually a Baptist church in Gaza um, called the Gaza Baptist Church. They had the property confiscated by Hamas in 2009. Many people are often shocked to discover that there are Palestinian Christians including Baptist brothers and sisters that find themselves caught up in the midst of this struggle. The pastor of the Gaza Baptist Church, they numbered about 200 in the year 2000, currently lives in exile in Jordan because he's, he's considered by the Israelis to be a terrorist because he's a Palestinian. He lives in exile in Jordan. More recently, you would have seen a report of the Baptist Hospital, as they call it, that was bombed um, by accident by Hamas um, in Gaza. Um, it was actually a hospital that was founded by Anglicans. For about 50 years, Baptists controlled it. It was when um, the property was confiscated by Hamas, and many of the members of the Gaza Baptist Church, we don't know how many still remains in Gaza, the word is, at the moment, they only have about 40 members of the Baptist Church in Gaza that remains there. Um, and so they were no, no longer able to look after that hospital, and so the Anglicans continue to, um, to look after that place. There are Palestinian Christian voices that I believe we need to listen to. There are two of them I would recommend and commend you to listen to. The one is the Reverend Dr. Munta Isaac. He is a Palestinian Christian. He is the academic dean of the Bethlehem Bible College in the West Bank. Um, he runs a website and a yearly seminar called Christ at the Checkpoint in which he challenges the evangelical world to consider the plight of Palestinian Christians as they are caught in the midst of the struggle. The other one is Reverend Dr. Johanna Cotonacho. He's a Baptist minister. He is a Palestinian and the academic dean of the Nazareth Evangelical Bible College. And one of his very striking lectures online is what he calls the Theology of the Land 
from a Palestinian perspective. You'll find both of them on YouTube. But where does this leave us? How do we as Christians then respond, or how should we respond to the situation in the Middle East? And this is where it becomes very contentious. <laughs> you see, because it depends. It depends upon our interpretation of Scripture, particularly what we call the prophetic text and the land text, in which there has been, and I want to acknowledge, a very dominant paradigm for understanding um, what is happening within the Middle East, particularly the conflict that is there. Um, the most popular of these approaches illustrated in that picture is what is called the dispensational theological understanding of what happens, um, um, of what is happening in the world today. Now basically, and this is going to be a bit of an information overload, I do know and I understand, but I'll try and explain it as simply as possible. Dispensational theology is a way of reading the book of Daniel and reading the book of Revelation as literally as possible and seeing it as a prophecy that one is able to analyze that will predict exactly what is going to be happening until the time Jesus returns and takes such phenomenon as the tribulation and the millennium, etc., in a very, very literal sense. This position was developed by a man by the name of J.N. Darby and has been popularized especially through um, some well-known writers like Hal Lindsey um, who has written, one of his books is The Late Great Planet Earth, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, and one of the books that I read when I was in high school, um, um, the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, in which Hal Lindsey was suggesting that since the modern state of Israel was founded in the year 1948, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, this generation will not pass until these things happen, he says, well, it's been very simple. A generation biblically is about 40 years, so you add 40 to 1948, and you get 1988. And I was praying, since I matriculated in 1987, Lord, please come before that. But we are still here. It continues to be popularized through um, the Left Behind series. So I'm sure you have all heard of that, maybe seen the movies. But that's not the only way to read the book of Daniel and to read the book of Revelation. So basically, there are three possible ways of reading the book of Daniel in terms of its prophecies and the book of Revelation, all focused on an understanding of what is called the millennium. <clears throat> so I've highlighted one of it already. In fact, there are two variations <clears throat> to what is called the dispensational approach. But nevertheless, yeah, so, so there is what is called a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism, quite a mouthful. Um, and what that means is, once again following a very literal reading of the book of Revelation, that after Jesus Christ, after Jesus was crucified, that sometime in the future, before his second coming, there's going to be a tribulation. Following that second coming, there's going to be a thousand-year period, a millennium, in which Satan is going to be bound 
we are going to reign with Jesus, and then the final judgment is coming. That's the one version. The other version is what is called a pre-tribulational premillennialism, which says the second coming happens before the tribulation. In other words, the rapture takes place before the tribulation, then there's a millennium, um, and then the last judgment happens. The second position is what is called a post-millennial position, meaning that the way in which the Bible is to be read is that the second coming and the last judgment actually happens after the millennium period. Okay? So there's no rapture, but there is a second coming and a last judgment. The third position is what is called an amillennial position. In other words, there is no literal millennium, but that the book of Revelation and the understanding of the millennium needs to be understood as a symbolic period between the death of Jesus and between the second coming. So all of these positions, these Christian positions, understand that Jesus has died and that Jesus will return, but has a difference in opinion as to the exact circumstances that will happen around them. It is particularly the dispensational position that sees an important aspect of the restoration of Israel, the return of Israel, so that the second coming can take place. Now this then takes us into the book of Romans and an attempt to understand what then does the Apostle Paul mean when he says all Israel will be saved. The book of Romans is probably one of the most intimidating books for many Christians because the book is so packed with theology, so packed with different ideas, you know, that you can get very easily confused by it. Allow me to give you maybe a, an overview, a survey that will help you to make sense so that when we come to this particular section, which is the third section in five sections of the book of Romans, you can understand what the purpose of Romans chapter 9 through to 11 is, and particularly what the Apostle Paul means when he says all Israel will be saved. So let me give you a quick overview. In the first four chapters of the book of Romans, what the Apostle Paul is doing is placing the gospel message of Jesus right at the center of what is needed for all people. And what he says in the first four chapters, what he tries to prove is that for anybody to come to faith, for anybody to be a true believer, you need to have faith in Jesus. This is, this is not just true for the Gentile, but it's also true for the Jews. So there's no plan A, plan B. There's no escape route. Everybody comes to God through Jesus. Anybody who rejects Jesus is not a true child of God. And what he does in the first four chapters is to show how through Jesus, both Gentile and Jew become part of a multi-ethnic family of Abraham, in which he introduces this idea, justification by faith. In other words, what he tries to show is that Abraham becomes a follower of God, becomes a child of God even before the giving of the law. It happens because Abraham has faith in God. Because Abraham, when he hears God saying to him, Go to a land, he obeys. And that, he says, is the faith 
that is needed by everyone. In chapters 5 through to 8, the Apostle Paul uses an illustration. An illustration of the first and second Adam. And he says, all of us who are descendants of Adam, we become a new humanity through the second Adam, which is Jesus. So in other words, what the Apostle Paul is doing is tying the biblical story of creation ultimately to God's idea of salvation. That just like we are all descendants of Adam, we can become a new humanity through the second Adam, which is Jesus. And then he comes to this passage or the section in Romans chapter 9 through to 11. Because the question now remains, but then what about the Jews? Where do they fit into this picture? And what the Apostle Paul does, he uses an illustration of an olive tree. Think about Jesus talking about the vine and the branches. Those who are grafted in and those who are cut out. The Apostle Paul is, essentially does the same thing, but using the example of an olive tree. And he says, everyone who is part of the olive tree are true Israel, but not everyone who is ethnic Israel is Israel. It is rather those who by faith trust in God that becomes Israel. So what is he saying in Romans chapter 9 through to 11? He's saying that if you take a look at the history of the Jews, there was always this idea of a remnant in Israel. Not everyone who was ever born a Jew was ultimately truly an Israel, an Israelite. Not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. He says that directly in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Unbelieving ethnic Israelites are not true Israelites of the faith if they have not accepted Jesus. Gentiles become true Israelites through faith in Jesus. The image he uses is that they are grafted in. So the olive tree represents who is true Israel. True Israel are Jews who believe in Jesus. Those who do not believe are cut off over there. Branches that are discarded. But those who believe, like Joshua and Caleb did, get grafted in as examples of the Gentiles who become part of true Israel. So who then is the all Israel he's referring to? All Israel who will be saved are those both Jew and Gentile who accept Jesus by faith. That is what Romans chapter 9 through to 11 is all about. Now if we are concerned about the land, let me quickly take you on a whirlwind tour through some scriptures that should help us to reconsider what the place of the land actually is, if at all prophetically. There are passages of scripture like Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, Psalm 24 verse 1, and Leviticus chapter 25 verse 23 that says the land belongs to God. Deuteronomy chapter 1 um, following on from Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, shows that the land is possessed as part of a promise. Leviticus chapter 20 says that land is given not just for any purpose, but because God expects stewardship of the land. The land needs to be held in justice and righteousness. 
Psalm 37, position of the land is a design, is a sign of divine blessing. Numbers chapter 33, verses, 30, verses 63 to 64. God's plan for the land was never permanent. And so this idea that it is an, it is an unconditional promise, while there are some scriptures that seems to illustrate that, there are equally scriptures that show that that is not the case. Possession of the land comes by conditions. If those conditions are not met, you lose the land. Leviticus chapter 26, 32 through to 39 illustrates that. But disobedience to God results in expulsion from the land. So what are we saying here within the Old Testament? Within the Old Testament, the land is an object lesson of faith life. It is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end to show what God was busy doing. In fact, when we come into the New Testament, we see very little, if any, concern for the claim of land on the basis of history or ethnicity. The concern is more about Christian identity and ultimate destiny. In fact, you will remember, look at Acts chapter 1, 6 to 8. When Jesus is risen from the dead and the disciples are so excited, they ask Jesus an important question. Lord, at this time, are you going to be restoring the nation of Israel? Jesus says, that's not what my kingdom is all about. I'm not concerned about this land. I'm concerned about another land. That other land one enters not through following particular festivals or rituals. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. That makes the theological connection between the true nature of who is Abraham's seed. And who are the circumcised. All those who by faith accepts Jesus. All true believers' home ultimately is in the new heavens and the new earth as it is in Revelation chapter 21. So, what do we say in conclusion? Is there any prophetic significance to what is currently happening in the Middle East? Yes and no. It ultimately depends on the theological position one takes. I am more concerned, however, about the current situation and the plight of those who find themselves in that situation. So you hear people saying that we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I want to affirm that, that that is very important. But if we understand what Psalm 122 is actually all about from where we get this idea of praying for the peace of Jerusalem. <clears throat> then you will see in that beautifully constructed psalm, which is called a psalm of ascent. In other words, a psalm that pilgrims would sing at least three times a year as they were making their way to Jerusalem. Their focus would be on two houses. Read Psalm 122. The house that is on top of Mount Zion, which is the temple in which they're going to serve God. The second house is the house of David. The house of David was his palace. In fact, the Hebrew word for palace and, and temple is exactly the same word. God lives in a palace called the temple. David lived in a palace called his palace, his house. 
What Psalm 122 should help us to understand is that one can only truly worship God in Zion at that house if the other house is in order. If there is from the house of David justice and righteousness that is being dispensed. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for its prosperity, in fact, the word that we translate in English as prosperity there is actually a very simple word that means good. Goodness. There has to be goodness. Because without goodness, what does God do? He takes away those things that He has promised. So when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we must also pray for Gaza and the West Bank as well. Because while many of them are Muslims, they are Christians there as well. And my Palestinian friends, who are Baptists often say to me, I do not understand. We find it very difficult to understand why our brothers in faith all across the world are more concerned about the Jews than what they are concerned about us. Something that we need to think about. I think a second conclusion that I would like to suggest is this, that we should not take political sides on either the Israeli or the Palestinian side. You know, what is happening there at the moment, that conflict is entirely a political one. You know, I've been amazed, having chatted to many Jewish people, one day on a plane to Ethiopia, sitting next to a guy, and I discover he's reading a novel in Hebrew. Um, I don't know modern Hebrew, I know a little bit of biblical Hebrew, and I started a conversation with him. And he said to me all in this conversation, yeah, I'm Jewish, but I don't believe in God. I just, I just practice these things, but is there a God? I don't know. I don't think so. You know, you'll be surprised how many Jews today don't actually believe in God. Now, will many of them come to faith as the Apostle Paul suggests? Yes, they will. They will become part of the true Israel. So we need to reevaluate our understanding and how we position ourselves in relation to that, but also maybe reevaluate our understanding of prophetic texts and their actual significance. You see, anybody who has ever tried to take the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and to predict when Jesus was going to, be, was going to come, who the Antichrist is, you know, what the circumstances is, for when those things is going to happen, always got himself into trouble. That has never been the point of those prophetic texts. So rather to understand the big picture, we need to also be concerned for the salvation of all the non-Christian people of the Middle East. And our duty is to share the gospel with all of them, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Palestinian. We also need to seek to minister to the social needs of the people caught in the conflict as part of our Christian moral duty. And then if there is a political statement that we should maybe make is to promote a just political settlement that will allow for Israeli and Palestinian to live as fellow citizens as they did before the Zionist movement. And so as we come to the end of this, what I wished to share with you as a kind of a didactic message, I want us to maybe just pause and reflect for the next few minutes. And as Alan and the worship team comes up and as they 
they play some music that will help us to worship God and reflect. I think above all, what we need to do is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But not to pray for that peace in a very narrow sense, but to do so in the broadest sense possible. So that if you are with me, and if there's any value in what I've shared with you today, um, especially in terms of your understanding as to what exactly is happening there, then we pray that God might intervene.